is Our American Stories for the hour. Don Rickles celebrated a quote from Don Rickles to the New York Daily News in 1996. Quote, I like to think I'm the guy who goes to the office Christmas party on Friday night, insults everyone there, and still has his job on Monday morning. Actually, that was his job, to insult everybody equally, including himself, and make people laugh. Rickles was an American stand-up comedian, actor, and author. He became well-known as an insult comic and received widespread exposure as a popular guest on late-night talk shows. His appearances on Carson were the best. For the hour, we're going to hear from Mr. Warmth about his personal life, his thoughts on comedy, and political correctness. We'll also hear some of his hilarious stand-up routines that consisted of storytelling and his trademark ability to heckle anyone and everyone and anything that stood in front of him. We're also going to play for you the emotional and touching tribute that late-night host Jimmy Kimmel paid to this comedian and friend. But let's go now back to the year 1984, where Rickles is delivering his monologue on Saturday Night Live. But fair warning to those who might be sensitive to racial and ethnic humor, this was at a time when people understood that jokes were simply jokes and nothing more. Here's Don doing what he did best in the prime of his comedy career, roasting the audience at Saturday Night Live. This is a great city, you kidding? I was up in Harlem the other night and I said, just the, just the wallet. <laughs> Black brother said he knows about us. <laughs> I make jokes about the black people, and why not? Because I'm not one. <laughs> Look at the black chicks laughing. God bless you, baby. It's your town. Dancing and singing and booze and having a good time. Love you women when you make love. Yeah! <laughs> You gotta be like the you gotta be like the Jews. I'm gonna get a paper. You start. Exciting <laughs> night. Look at these people. All sitting around like dummies, right in the front going. <laughs> Look like you're rolling a toilet. Anybody need a magazine? <laughs> that's what it's about, New York. Italians, Jews, Irish, whatever the hell you are. You're people. That's what I love about this city. There's a chemistry. I swear to God, you're an, are you an Irishman? Are you an Irish kid? What are you, a bird? <laughs> Got a jerk in the back. Hey, what do you say, Charlie? Are you Italian? Who's Italian? You Italian? Where the hell were you in World War II? They could have used you. Remember what the Italian said in World War II? Run! <laughs> That's what it's about. Laugh at what people, that's what I do. I laugh at life, I swear. Are you an Italian kid? Are you Italian? The one with the flies all around. <laughs> Look at this, the Puerto Rican guy went, he didn't recognize me. <laughs> we need the Puerto Ricans. For what? <laughs> oh yeah, to stand around going, Dana, Maria, 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 Maria. And the Puerto Rican guy's in the alley going, yeah, heavy for you, huh, kid? Look at you, you're a real moron sitting there. You know. Kids in the front going, what a night, what a night. Where you from, young fella? Chicago. Trouble. <laughs> you're not Italian? No, sir. Jewish? No, sir. French? No, sir. What are you? Swedish. Swedish. Damn it, I don't have a joke for that. <laughs> 
uh, kiss my yump and yiminy. Anyway. Nah, the Swedes are great. You put too many holes in the cheese, though. I'll tell you this. It's the whole thing. <laughs> you know why I'm laughing? Because I know what's coming next and I'm so funny. Hey! That's the whole thing, no matter what. Where, where are you from, my friend? You're, you're Chinese, right? Chinese? This girl here? If you're not, get your eyes fixed. <laughs> Look at the Chinese boy sitting there going, who's Chinese? Who's Chinese? <laughs> we gotta make a fuss over them, otherwise they burn the shirts. <laughs> That's why you burn the shirts with the iron. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't care what you are. You're fat. <laughs> I'll tell you this. Take a look, is he laughing? If you see a guy with a little Nazi emblem looking like a tank coming towards me, call me. No, I make fun. You're a heavy set guy. I swear. Yeah, there's a new thing out called cottage cheese. Anyway, uh, I can picture this big fella making love to the wife. She lays in the bed and she goes, No! No! Hey, may I come in the audience a minute to say hello? You're nice people, really. I must say that. I gotta tell you that. How are you, amigo? Spanish, Spanish. Spanish, que pasa, serera, carero. See, they're laughing, and one of their guys is up in my room now taking my jewelry. Anyway. Uh... And there you have it. That's about everything you need to know about Rickle's stand-up. Nobody was immune from a joke or excluded from a joke, and he was Jewish, and if you notice... There it was, making fun of his own people before he made fun of anyone else. And everybody knows he was kidding. And that's at least well, everybody knew who was going to pay. And who was Don Rickles? That's the question. That's what we're going to spend the hour on, some of his material. But the life, the man, where he grew up. He was born to Jewish parents in Queens, New York, on May 8th, 1926. His father, Max, emigrated in 1903 with his Lithuanian parents from the Russian Empire. And his mother, Etta, was born in New York City to Austrian immigrant parents. Rickles grew up in Jackson Heights, New York. And by the way, that's in a Queens neighborhood at the time that was filled with every possible immigrant group living on top of one another. Here, Don Rickles tells us about growing up with his mother and father. Well, it's not much of a story because Jackson Heights, I, I was, uh, the school was right, right opposite where we lived. And our only child, and we had, uh, my father was a wonderful kind of guy. He, he passed away very young. Oddly enough, he passed away on the street in New York, and my cousin at that time was an intern at Bellevue. And he was in an ambulance, and he came, not knowing it was my father, and tried to bring him back to life. Anyway, so, and my mother was a woman that did this. Some of these days, she went to a party and just stood up. And, You're gonna miss me, honey. She loved to <laughs> kid around and entertain. And so, too, did Don Rickles. And you're going to learn more about the other side of Mr. Warmth, the other side of the insult comic extraordinaire, Don Rickles, whose act today would be outlawed in college campuses across this country, who made so many millions of us laugh. More of his life story. After these messages, this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, the story of Don Rickles, celebrated for the hour here on Our American Stories. Don Rickles' father, Max, as we just learned, passed away at a young age. Here, Rickles talks about learning of his father's death. I was about in my late 30s. Yeah, and I, I was in a place in Washington, a little joint. A little, in those days, they called it a striptease place. And my cousin came, and I was backstage ready to go on. And he said, now forget it. He passed on two rest or so. And he came on, and he said, Don, Dad. I said, I'm going on, Jerry, not now. I've got to tell you, Dad just died. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And I went out on the stage, and the Almighty must have been watching. I did the best show in this joint they ever saw in their life. And then when I came back, I realized what happened, and I, I, I took it very hard. I was very close to my father. I don't know if it made me any different. My mother had more of an influence on me than my, my dad. My dad was, was a wonderful guy, but my mother ran the ship. She was, a, I call her the Jewish patent. She had full command. She, uh, she'd walk into a room and she'd be noticed. My mother was really the influential person to make me come out and do what I do. And I, I really wanted to be an actor because I didn't know too much. And by the way, the Jewish patent, you can't beat it. Talking about his early years, Don Rickles describes always being able to make friends because he was funny. He also got his first comedy gigs by performing as he just described, at strip clubs. I had a knack of always uh, not being successful in schoolwork, unfortunately, but uh, uh, to win over friends. I, I worked in the toughest places you could imagine. I mean, guys would say, hey, the kid's funny, you know. And if they didn't like you, they'd, they'd let you know. But I, I was always able to handle it in those days, hecklers and so forth. Not, and not with uh, up your kazoo and all that stuff they, they do today. And, and, they, and I don't put the young kids down. And people laugh at it, so fine. But I've never done that. I, I, I didn't believe in that, and I still don't. But I, I, uh, when I say tough play, you know, people were, were just uh, not nightclub people, just people that came in for a drink and said, oh, there's a guy up there who's going to kid around, you know. And uh, little by little, you know, it caught on. I was a busy little guy, but a lot of women... The, the ones that were kind of decent and beautiful and nice were scared to death of me. Scared to death of me. They thought, oh, that's the guy that's going to make funny, you know. And I finally met my beautiful wife, Barbara. And, and she, was a, she was a very, uh, she still is, thank God, very smart and bright lady. And uh, she understood my humor, you know. And that's the story there. Rickles would eventually go on to play at the famous Copacabana, here he describes how it all happened at gunpoint. The Copacabana was uh, certainly no strip joint. Uh, it was, uh, there's a little story to that. I, the first time I went to the Copa, I, I met Jules Podell, who ran the Copa. And I said, Mr. Podell, it's nice to meet you. Forgive the impersonation, but let's wait to talk. I, I, I don't want any kid in my joint that makes fun of people mm-hmm. and calls them dummies and yo-yos. I don't need that crap. Joe, nothing no, nothing personal, but this kid can't come near my joint. I don't want to see him. I don't want to bother me and leave me alone, and I love him. I'll have a drink on me and goodbye. I said, well, Joe, I'm not going to work the cope. And Joe said, he had a high voice like a bird. Don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. You know, put a dress on him. You thought it was a girl. Anyway, so he said, I'll take care of it. Don't worry, Don. Next day, 
the phone rang and he said, Mr. Podell would like to see you. And I said, oh, geez, what's going to be now? So I went to the coop and we sat in the lounge, had a drink, he said, I want you to know you're one of the finest, funniest comedians in the world. I've been all over the country. You are now going to be part of the Copacabana family. Say any damn thing you want. Well, the punchline was, some guys from Brooklyn, you know, their guns were being oiled. And so they, they called him and said, Jules, we like this kid, boom. And next thing you know, I was starring in the Copacabana. I made it a little shorter, but that's pretty much what, what happened. And every time I went on, he'd make me come in the kitchen. The one of the funniest kids in the world. Boom. <laughs> have a glass of whiskey. But uh, those were great days, the Copacabana. Rickles was close friends with Frank Sinatra and other people who were known at the time for their connections to the mafia. Here's Don talking about Sinatra's notorious temper. He had his moods, you know. I loved him. I was sorry. See, many people were frightened of him because he had a temper, you know. But to know him, if he loved you, there was no gray area. In other words, he'd say, Dan, you're the best. Well, forget about it. He, you know, he was a gentleman to you, but you, you never could be his friend. And, and with me, I, I was very blessed to have, uh, have his friendship. Rickles was branded as an insult comic early on, but he doesn't necessarily agree with that term insult here in this clip. The word insult stuck with me. I really don't... See, nobody would come to a theater and if I said something terrible about you and it wasn't funny and it wasn't uh, sensible, he, he wouldn't be there. The idea is that people know unless you live under a rock. If I say to you, Dan, I'm going to be a friend, the tie in the shirt, it's weak, take it off. Now, I'm not saying that you're a moron. I do say to a guy, don't be a moron. You know, it's the way you say things. My father had that gift. It's not mean-spirited, and it's obvious unless you live under a rock. It's a joke. It's a, you know, if I say to a guy, uh, is that the wife? And I go, ooh, have you thought about a hospital? You know. The guy's laughing like you. He's laughing. Why? Because I'm not mean. I'm not, he knows it's a joke, you know, but I worked in many places. At the beginning, I said, good evening, in Montreal, Canada, going, you, he called my wife an idiot. Get him out of here. You know, and I used to be on, on the plane a lot. It didn't catch on one, two, three, you know, but, that, but, that, but that's what I did. In other words, I did impressions and nobody laughed and I can't to this day really tell a joke. But I would, like I'm talking to you, and things would happen. I'd look at the audience, and every night my show does change. There's a beginning, middle, and ending. But every night it changes. It's according to what's in front of me, you know. Indeed, Rickles has always been about laughter. Here, he tells a story about a joke his mother told from her deathbed. I was always that way. And even in school, even with my friends, uh, I find life can be funny. Things in sadness make me laugh, you know. Uh, not because I'm heartless, certainly not. Uh, when my mother passed away, my mother, my mother made me laugh when she was dying, rest her soul. She was in the hospital with masks and everything. And she was only in her late 70s in those days, you know. And, uh, and she had emphysema, bad. And I said, Doctor, how is he? He said, oh, no. I said, can I go in and talk to her? I said, yeah. And it's a true story. And I walked by, I said, Mom, dear, it's me. She lifted up the mask and she said, it's that slow in New Vegas? She always made me feel good. She yelled at me a lot. In other words, I ran away from home once in Jackson Heights and I forget, she lifted up the window then and yelled out, I went to the bus stop and she said, you forgot your sweater. 
It's that slow in Vegas. And that's where Rickles got his humor from. It's called dark humor. By the way, for many Jews, dark humor was a refuge. I mean, when you think about Mel Brooks's masterpiece, uh, many people at the time that the producers came out, and that's his epic film and that got turned into a play, is a mockery of Hitler. And it, it made fun of Nazis, and it got people to laugh about Nazis. And a lot of people were offended at this. But Mel Brooks had the best line. He was, I am not going to let Hitler rule over me. We will laugh at Hitler. And those of you who don't like it, don't go and see the producers. That was always the answer. Uh, it isn't these days. Not many things could get a guy like Don Rickles down, except for one thing. When he lost one of his children. I lost my son. I don't want to get too emotional, but he was only 40 years old, and he was everything to us. And he has a sister, thank God, and she has two children. She's great. And to lose a son at 40, God forbid, it was a horror. It, it, it absolutely broke my heart. I, honest to God, from the days of recognizing what life was about, from the day I, in World War II, that I was in the Navy under a little pressure, so to speak, with sorrow, I was always able to handle that. Always. Uh, my son was the only time that I fell apart a little bit, but always able to handle that. And I never think of death. Now, I go to sleep at night, and sometimes I say, will I wake up in the morning? And then you read in the paper, 92, Charlie, Eddie, boom, you know, dying all around you, and you say, gee, What's going to be, you know? That's the only time I, I ever think about death at my age. And there you have it, the serious side of a serious man who did something very serious for a living, and that is making people laugh. Try it sometime on a stage. It's not easy. And try teasing people on their ethnicities, on very personal things, and still have them love you. Because that's what he did. When we come back, more on this remarkable comic talent. Don Rickles celebrating his life, celebrating his story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, The Life of Don Rickles. We continue here. On April 6, 2017, Don Rickles died of kidney failure at his home in Beverly Hills, California. He was 90 years old. And that same night, Jimmy Kimmel went on the air live to deliver this heartfelt tribute to his friend. It was a real moment of pure and beautiful human emotion that is rarely seen on TV sets or anywhere else in the media for that matter. Take a listen. Well, <clears throat> there I go, right? Thank you for coming. It's not going to be our usual show tonight because, and I'm going to tell you right in front, I'm going to cry. I'm already crying, uh, which is embarrassing, but, uh, uh, well, I'm not good with this sort of thing. And uh, I'm sorry, especially to those of you who came to see the show in person, but 
because uh, it's probably not what you came for. But we lost someone that we and I love very much today. And again, I'm sorry for hearing this just now for the first time, but Don Rickles passed away this morning and uh, he was 90 years old. And I know it sounds crazy to say he was he was too young, but it, he he was because he was uh, youthful and funny and sharp and generous. And I, I was fortunate enough to not only have Don on this show as my guest, but also to become close to him and his wife, Barbara, which was a lot of fun for me. I grew up in Las Vegas, so Don Rickles, even when I was a kid, was a very big deal. Was, his name was on the marquee at the Sahara Hotel. You see him with Johnny Carson, making fun of Johnny, making fun of Frank Sinatra. And um, people always wanted to hear Don tell Sinatra stories, and he had great stories. But, um, and I think this might be what brought us together, because I told Don, and this is honestly how I felt like the Sinatra stories are great, but if Sinatra was here, I'd be asking him for stories about you. In this remarkable monologue and tribute to the loss of his hero and friend, Jimmy Kimmel recalls a story about the time when Don Rickles got an angry Frank Sinatra to calm down by cracking a joke. Well, Bob Newhart, Don's good friend, Bob Newhart, another national treasure, told me a great story about having dinner with Don and Sinatra that sums Don up pretty well, I think. Sinatra would sometimes get angry uh, for whatever reason and flip out. So one night, they were all at a big table at a very fancy restaurant, and the restaurant was all white. Everything was white, the walls of the tablecloths, Everything. And Don and uh, Barbara, his wife, and Bob and his wife, Ginny, were at the table. And Frank was drinking, and he was not in a good mood. He was getting surly, which put everyone on edge. When Frank wasn't happy, you had to watch it. So they're drinking, and the food comes, and the waiter brings a bottle of ketchup and puts it on the table in front of Frank. And for whatever reason, this sends Frank into a rage. He, takes, he doesn't want ketchup on the table, so he takes the bottle, and a very crowded elegant restaurant he throws it at the wall and the bottle smashes and there's ketchup everywhere and everyone in the restaurant stops there's like a gasp and don without missing a beat turns and says frank will you pass the ketchup <laughs> and, <laughs> and sinatra laughs and everyone laughs and nobody dies that night thanks to don kimmel holding back tears the best that he could tells a story here about a hilarious dinner encounter that he had with Don Rickles. The first time Don was on our show was almost, um, uh, uh, four, four years after uh, we started, we'd, um, we'd been trying to book him since the beginning. We asked him to do the show over and over again, and he didn't know what this was. He knew The Tonight Show and Letterman, and that's it. But finally, after we bothered him like 20 times, he gave up, and he did the show for my birthday in 2006, and it was exciting. It was like I was in some kind of talk show host fantasy camp sitting behind a desk with, while Don Rickles made fun of me. It was like, you know, being, it was like being a real talk show host for a minute. So, <laughs> And then Don came to visit 17 more times after that, and whenever he was on, we would go out to dinner. Um, we would always go out to dinner after the show, except for one night. I couldn't go because I was already going to dinner. It was a little, like a late booking. I was going to dinner with my friend Jeff Ross, the comedian. It was his 50th birthday, and he's only in town for like the night. So a few days beforehand, I told Don, I can't go to dinner after the show because I already have plans. We'll go another night. I couldn't tell him I was going to another dinner with someone else, or he would bust my balls till I had none left. So I was nonspecific. I just said, I can't make it. 
So we made plans for another night. And after the show, I said goodbye to Don. And I went to dinner with Jeff. And Jeff and I and my cousin Sal are sitting at the table. And who walks in? <laughs> and not only walks in, is seated at the table right next to us. Is Don. He looks at me. He's like, I thought you couldn't go to dinner. And I'm like, it's his birthday. I didn't know. And he hammered me and heckled me through the whole meal. Until finally, I just got up and moved over to his table. And Kimmel continues to pour his heart out with some fond memories he had of Don Rickles. He made fun of everybody. He would come here, he'd make fun of, of me, Guillermo, the band, the audience, like a guy who put the microphone on his lapel. The, he'd make fun of the vegetable platter in his dressing room. He, when he'd come to my house, he'd yell about the stairs as if I put them there specifically <laughs> to inconvenience him. Every time I'd see him, he'd go, you still have those stairs? <laughs> No, we're pole vaulting into the house now, Don. <laughs> I once took him to Moza, which is Mario Batali's restaurant here. It's a very nice restaurant. We rented the private room in the back. We had food. I invited his friends. It was beautiful. It was very expensive, okay? And I paid for it. At the end of the meal, after the end, at the end of this beautiful meal, he, he says to me, I'll never forget, he goes, I can't believe you took me to a pizza place. <laughs> But he was very sweet. They called him Mr. Warmth as a joke, but he, that was what he was. He would always ask about um, my parents, my kids. Um, when my Uncle Frank passed away, I called him and asked him to be the guest on that show, and, uh, which was a tough show. Man. Um, and he helped all of us through it. He gave me advice, and good advice, not the advice people give you just to hear themselves giving you advice. He would always say, keep my name alive, which um, he'd, he'd tell me to keep his name alive, which I thought was funny because, you know, I was like, you're Don Rickles. You keep my name alive. My- <laughs> and in closing, Kimmel shared some of the personal letters that Don Rickles had mailed him over the years. I saved every note he ever sent me. There were like 27 notes and letters from Don, and I want to read a couple of them. Um, by the way, every time he sent me a card, he'd send it in an overnight mail package, and there'd be a label on it. It cost $20 every time. He didn't just, he just put, he spent more than $500 on postage alone for me, so here are a few of these very expensive, uh, notes. Uh, dear Jimmy, thanks so much for inviting me in to your home for dinner, but to be honest, we would have preferred a three-month trip to Venice, Italy. Dear Jimmy, thanks so much for the beautiful frame of you and I. Who needs Sinatra? Your picture, your picture of us together is much more important. Please don't show this note to anyone because it could cause harm to me and my family. I'm <laughs> <Love> Don. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you so much for the bottles of wine. We've been so busy crushing grapes with our bare feet. <laughs> hoping to have wine for the holidays. And you came to the rescue just in time. (laughs) Dear Jimmy, what a great, thoughtful gift for Christmas. Such a good Italian. Maybe you should open a deli and start selling salami. (laughs) Maybe I should. (laughs) Dear Jimmy, uh, we watched your Academy Awards show. Uh, Barbara loved every bit of it. But here's what I thought. (laughs) You were on camera too much. (laughs) All in all, it was okay. We love you, so don't worry. (laughs) 
Oh, my goodness. And that tells you who Don Rickles really was. And for all those who get uptight at a joke, a reference about their ethnicity, get over it. Have a laugh. Because that laughter represents love. When we can kid each other about things about each other that are personal, it means we care about one another. And that was the real Mr. Warmth. The life of Don Rickles here on Our American Stories. A life like no other. Our American Stories, and speaking of late-night TV, Don Rickles was well-known for his appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here's the time when Rickles surprised Carson, who was then interviewing Frank Sinatra on The Tonight Show in November of 1976. Rickles started joking with Sinatra about the nefarious dealings he had with the mob. Hey, Frank, it's good to see you. Uh, I, I, I just I just was hanging around in the hall, and I, I said, Frank Sinatra's here, and I've never met him, you know. <laughs> And I get the chill. You'll excuse us, won't you? Certainly, you know? certainly. Marco Mangananzo was hurt. <laughs> Marco Mangananzo. Fambino Bombazzo. Two bullets in the head Thursday. <laughs> now this, this you don't believe. Excuse us, Johnny, you're, you're from the Midwest. You're busy going, is the truck loaded? <laughs> Guido says hi. He hasn't had a chance to talk to you. And from Jersey City, your good friend, Bubani Umbazza. What's he his name? He started his car. <laughs> he started his car with your album on, and now he's a highway. Oh, that's funny. But I tell you, I'm a Jew and you're an Italian. And here we have what? <laughs> And this is a great Irishman. This is America. Yes, sir. And that's why I just want to say, before we go any further, for 14 years, Johnny Carson kept saying, do you really know Frank? And I want you to know, Frank, I worship you and I love you. I really mean this. Because since I'm a kid, I used to blow in girls' ears and hear you go, and do it my way. I need a girl so bad. I love my wife, but she's ill. <laughs> But you just got married, Frank. I just can't picture him on the wedding night standing in the room going, And did it all, and I suppose it's my way. And by the way, in this same scene, Sinatra gets one right on the kisser from Don Rickles, not once but twice. And I mean, one of them is like a French kiss, practically. And no one had ever, no one would hug Sinatra. Rickles jumped in there and kissed him on the lips. And Carson fell off his seat. And not much made Carson fall off his seat. And, well, Don Rickles was roasting Sinatra. Uh, and a little surprise visit during, wait, I'm, not, I'm missing that. So this is still the same story, Jesse, right here? Uh, yeah, I only recapped that because I thought we were coming back from a break at that point. 
So I'd ignore that. Uh, just pick up it. But Sinatra had a story of his own. Okay. And when Rickles was done with all that, Sinatra then turned the tables and he had his own story about Don Rickles. Can I, listen, can I tell a story about sure. what this man did to me once? You may have known or heard about this. It was a true story. This was a long time ago, long before Don got married. I was eating dinner in a restaurant in New York and uh, uh, I was with, with some friends and he came over to the table and he said, Frank, do me a favor, will you? He said, I'm sitting with a very pretty girl and uh, I'm trying to make out, you know. And he said, I told her I know you and she really doesn't believe me. Would you stop by the table? I said, all right. I was just about finished. I was down to the espresso. And I wa- finally he went back and I walked by the table and I said, how are you, Don? Nice to see you. He said, can't you see I'm eating, Frank? What are you doing? <laughs> Rickles was the ultimate roast master. He can make fun of anybody at any time without even thinking about it. I mean, imagine, even in his private life, he was spoofing Sinatra with no audience, just an audience of one, a girl he barely knew. Here is Don Rickles roasting, of all people, Clint Eastwood, right to his face. Clint, I say it, nobody else has said it, and I say it from my heart. You're a lousy actor. Spielberg and all these guys at the table we know Clint I know you Clint's idea of a good time is sitting on a pickup truck watching his dog bark (laughs) Mother Eastwood is laughing knowing damn well you never had so much money in your whole life but you know Clint and I know that I have so much on you which I won't say tonight Because if I spill it out, you're going to be back in Rawhide. (laughs) And now you're in your late 60s. Live up to it. It's over. It didn't matter if you were a famous actor, a police officer, a taxi driver, or the future president of the United States. Here's a clip of Don Rickles roasting then-governor of California, Ronald Reagan. You, governor, are a great man. You can tell because you don't see many governors with clip-on bow ties. (laughs) Hey, fun is fun. There are many people that are planted around here to look like they enjoy this. (laughs) Dean Martin said to me when Governor Reagan or Reagan, whatever they call you, I don't care. (laughs) What do I care what they call you? You're the governor. If I got a cousin getting the chair, you better make that phone call. (laughs) But I say this from my heart, governor. I've met you once in the hallway at NBC, as you remember. And I'll never forget your words. Get out of the way, kid. I kid you, sir. You are a politician. Black, white, Jew, Gentile. We're all working for one cause. To figure out how you became governor. Fantastic. And in a Don Rickles tribute that aired on 2014, in 2014, film director Martin Scorsese and actor Robert De Niro paid their respects to Rickles in the only way you can. And by the way, folks, that's Scorsese and De Niro paying tribute. 
by giving him a good laugh. I met Don sometime before we were both cast in Casino. It was a different world back then. There was affirmative action. For Jews. No one had told Steven Spielberg he had to hire more Italians for Schindler's List. But in 1984, Universal said we needed more Jews in the picture. <clears throat> what? We don't have enough Jews in the picture? Alan King and Sharon Stone? What are they, chopped liver? <laughs> Turns out Sharon Stone wasn't even Jewish. With a name like that. Ooh, you know. So we had to get another Jew. We didn't need a star. We needed uh, just a Jew who would, you know, work cheap and who would... We, uh, we could, we could bury in a, in a bit part, a couple of lines in the background and a few shots, you know, like that. So. Jackie Mason wasn't available, so who did we get? Don Rickles. It, it was a true collaboration, right, Don? <laughs> Me doing some of my best acting of my career. And Don standing in the background in some of my biggest scenes. I mean, I, I love Don then. I love him now. But Don is something rare, a true friend, a wonderful human being. If he weren't, he would never be able to get away with being such an asshole. <laughs> and here's Martin Scorsese with De Niro at his side with his bit to say about Don Rickles. Bob and I did like eight pictures together. Um, we would put everything we had into each and we'd always be excited about doing the next one. Then we did Casino with Don 20 years ago. <laughs> and we haven't worked together since <laughs> now, it's amazing it's amazing Don the influence you've had on our careers yeah Don on behalf of Leo DiCaprio thanks a lot <laughs> now, <laughs> now when, when Bob De Niro and I are on, on the same stage together these days it's usually to give each other lifetime achievement awards so we see each other mainly at award ceremonies and memorial services, <laughs> like tonight. <laughs> we wanted to honor your memory, Don, so here we are. Though if I'd been directing this, I don't think I would have gone for the open casket. <laughs> Rest in peace, old friend. And you hear those laughs, and you wonder, where are those laughs today? Do people know each other well enough to have enough fun with each other like that? And what a better way to pay tribute to this man than to leave you with these parting words from Scorsese and De Niro, roasting the comic, the legend, the genius that he was, Don Rickles. I, I was asked to speak a little about what it's like to direct you. Uh, it's difficult because nobody can direct Don Rickles. I mean, directors just hand him over to the set decorator and they put him in, you know, where he do the least damage. <laughs> Actually, no. I mean, having Don on the set and in all those shots lent a real presence to the film. He was a direct line to the 1970s uh, Las Vegas and Casino. The town was a character in that, in that movie. And Don, you were the link to that town. You know, you gave it authenticity. You gave it a sense of danger. That was the theory, anyway. <laughs> I, it worked. Don's a real thing. 
He was there when, when the mob ran Vegas. He was caught just into the Rat Pack. And yes, he knew Sinatra, and, and he managed to say it in every damn sentence he ever said. Yeah, I knew Frank. Frank loved me. There was Frank in my front row. Frank always came to see me. I told Frank this. I told Frank that. I'm so sick of hearing about Frank Sinatra. Enough already. Enough already. Don Rickles' life story. Robert De Niro telling just one of many great stories. A life well lived. We celebrate Don Rickles' story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and periodically we drill down on a book we think is important, and we spend an hour with the author. And the author has generally spent, well, not hours, not, not months, more than likely years drilling down on the subject themselves. And so always we like to talk to the author a bit about their own history, and then drive down on the book itself. And this month, the book is Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants, and it caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, which had a compelling review and drove us to, well, ask ourselves, what's going on? And so joining us is Tim Wu. Tim, thanks for joining us. Oh, sure. Pleased to be here. Tim, we love starting off always with any conversation we have with anybody, whether it's an inmate or a celebrity. And we've, we've just about covered the full range here. Um, and you're somewhere in between an inmate and a celebrity. Uh, tell me a little bit about who you are. Where did you grow up? What were you interested in when you were young, and what led you to this place in your life that you're writing a book called The Attention Merchants? Well, that's a great uh, uh, question. So I was uh, born in Washington, D.C. My, my parents were scientists at the NIH. Uh, we grew up, though, kind of all over the place. Moved from Washington to, to Canada, Toronto, for a while. Um, spent some time in Europe. Eventually came back to the United States. So I, I and then in the United States, I've lived on West Coast, East Coast. So a little bit of, of everywhere. I also spent a little time in Asia. My father is uh, Taiwanese. Uh, I don't know what I was interested in that was related to this uh, book when I was a kid. I did have a way when I was a kid of uh, memorizing advertising jingles, and uh, uh, this book does um, dwell very deeply into the uh, the history of advertising. And I guess I decided to write this book for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is I just sense something is going on here. I, um, like everyone, um, I think feel more fragmented, a little distracted, think it's hard to focus. I mean, I thought it's always been true, but I think our environment has gotten um, much more to be one that distracts us. And, uh, you know, I noticed that effect. Many of the listeners may have felt it as well, where you sit down for an hour uh, and you want to write an email and then suddenly three hours have gone by or, and you don't really know what happened. Uh, so I sometimes think we're living in the, almost like a giant casino uh, that we've, we've designed that uh, tries to grab our time and attention and divert it towards sort of random purposes, um, often in the pursuit of no great profit, but just a, a little marginal money on the side. 
So I, I think that that was a concern to me. I, I'm the kind of person who, I, I guess philosophically, um, thinks that uh, there's something to a life where you've chosen what you do, and and you know the self-development of character I think is very important. And I think that uh, requires focus and time and uh, space, frankly. And uh, I guess I wrote the book out of some concern that maybe we're losing uh, some of that, and it's harder to almost do what you want to do, no matter what that is. You know, build model airplanes or or write a novel or, or just play an instrument. Whatever that is, I kind of think it's being harder to do the things that really make it worth being uh, being alive and human. So... That's why I wrote the book. How's that? No, I think that's interesting. And, you know, we, we, we spent some time on a Stanford study that had to do with delayed gratification and kids uh-huh. picking that first marshmallow, waiting for that second or that third, and then determining success levels based on the ability to delay gratification. And I think to your point, it's just getting more difficult than ever before because there are so many calls on our attention and our gratification, and yeah. it, they're coming at such warped speed, and particularly if you're a parent. Uh, you're seeing this now when your own kids comparing that over your own childhood and going, my goodness, these kids, they're on their phones. They, they don't have moments alone together. They're together on the phones, texting and chatting. And what effect does this have and what an experiment this is? Because there's never been an experiment like it ever before. No, I agree with you. To take up from that Stanford study, um, it's almost as if we live in a world covered in marshmallows. You know, so you never... <laughs> are hungry. And so even if you're a tiniest bit hungry, um, you can grab it and gratify yourself. A different way of saying it is we've sort of lost our capacity uh, to do things that are even remotely boring. And, um, you know, at this point, in, in fact, someone who can do something that's boring has like a magical power because everyone else seems to d- demand sort of constant titillation. Um, you know, I, uh, in the various jobs I've held, it, you notice a lot of people can't sit, be in a meeting. You know, they can't take it. They have to start checking their email or doing something. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's uh, fine. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't like being bored like anyone else, but I also don't like being uh, tired. But you understand to stay in shape, you need to sometimes, you know, run, run, uh, run around or do some exercise. And, you know, it'll be a little unpleasant, but it's actually good for you. I think the same thing is happening a little bit with our minds, is that we have um, just created an environment that is so full of tiny little uh, almost like marshmallows, as I said, pleasure pots. Uh, and you see this most distinctively, as you say, in children. I'm also a parent of two daughters. And, um, you know, it's always something the older generation always says, well, in my day we walked 10, 10 miles right. to the <laughs> local bus stop and suffered through this and that. But I do think, you know, there were times when I was a kid where we had to, you know, essentially be bored. <laughs> a little bit to get through things. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't like it at the time, but I think it builds a certain character not to get what you want all the time. And that's what I'm a little bit worried about. Yeah, and I, I might add that I think when you're killing time and when you have space, this is where creativity comes in. This is where your ability to fill that space yourself comes yeah. in rather than yeah. be con- continually entertained by some other and alternative universe. Well, you know, most of the things that are real feats of human um, potential, in a sense, uh, you know, they can be a little hard, almost tedious uh, in, in times, writing a book, a good example. Um, you know, learning to play an instrument uh, is something I think people find very satisfying. is really hard. Yep. Um, and it doesn't reward, it's not like, you know, clicking on uh, Cindy Lauper, what's she up to now? Yep. <laughs> you know, it yep. takes a lot of work. You have to get your fingers 
I was trying to learn to play the ukulele the other day to train my daughter. I was like, this is an easy instrument, but it's actually, you know, you got to put your fingers in the right spot. It doesn't, it's not like clicking on something and it happens. That's right. And by the um, way, we're talking, yeah. to, we're talking to Tim Wu. The book is The Attention Merchants. Tim also happens to teach uh, at Columbia Law School, so I assume yeah. that Tim's a lawyer, and I am too. And uh, there are so many other things Tim's written about, but today the focus, again, The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to get inside our heads. And when we come back, we'll dive into the book, one or two more questions about his personal life, and then we're going to let it rip. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're being visited by Tim Wu, the author of The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get It Inside Our Heads. And I don't know a parent I've been talking to in the past half decade now that isn't worried about the never-ending onslaught of material that goes inside our kids' heads, and frankly, as we're punishing them to stop texting or to not text and drive whatever else we're imploring them to do, we're doing it ourselves. And in some senses, I think we're becoming addicted to this stuff. And the question is, are we? And what can we do about it? And what are the forces behind all of this technology? And a lot of it, many of you don't know about, which is what we're going to dive into right now and continue our conversation with Tim Wu. And Tim, you know, just a a bit about your, your professional life as a professor at Columbia Law School. I went to the University of Virginia Law School. And intellectual property for me was one of the most interesting areas. I was going to school in the early 1990s. And what was about to happen in this world of IP was, well, everybody felt like something was about to happen. And boy, did it. Uh, talk a bit about the life that you live as a as a professional and how that might have, uh, in some ways, affected your your desire to write this book as well. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of uh, parts of my life that intersected with the topic of this book, which is um, both the advertising industry and the um, the uh, the advertising platforms. You know, the companies that re- that gather up the crowd. So. Um, uh, one, I mean, one uh, thing I did is I worked in marketing at one point in my life, uh, and I think it's a very eye-opening experience to work in marketing. Uh, you, you realize just how, uh, e- even for a lawyer, it's, it's, uh, it, it would be surprising to realize how just simplified you have to make an argument and make it again and again and again in 10, 15 different media uh, to get heard even a little bit. <laughs> Yep. You know, the, the marketing is, is just about relentless, relentless repetition and really about, uh, you know, putting your, your elbow grease to the wheel or I don't know, that's the worst metaphor I've ever used. <laughs> you know, just doing it over and over and yep. over and over again until you, to your crowd finally hits, hits what you're trying to say. Um, I, even when I was in marketing, looked a little, did a little bit of advertising or at least commissioned ads, and it was always shocking to me what worked. You can never predict it. It just, you throw some stuff out there and this one hits and, and who knows why. Um, other things, uh, you know, I've worked in, I've done some journalism, uh, written uh, for Slate magazine and, and for the New Yorker magazine. And, you know, that's a very instructive experience because journalists are always trying to get the attention of their readers and you're in an incredibly competitive environment. 
and you learn pretty quickly some of the rules. You know, you better uh, have some kind of hook. If you want to write a story, you were talking about intellectual property. If you want to write about intellectual property, well, better put Harry Potter in it, and then you'll get a lot of readers. Exactly. Um, you know, so I, this is, these are things I've learned. I, I, I have also been a law uh, professor. I worked um, in the government when I was a professor um, in antitrust enforcement, and I started feeling that we didn't, in government, really understand the, the business models of much of the web. Uh, and that was a real challenge. Um, you know, we were investigating some of the big Internet platforms, Twitter and Google, and just figuring out whether they were violating antitrust laws. And we, the, the, the kind of businesses that depend on advertising opposed to money, we weren't really well equipped to deal with. And that was one another thing that led me to write this book. Yeah, and that's almost a separate hour that we could do on antitrust <laughs> and Google yeah. and Facebook and how ill-equipped old antitrust law is to grapple with the modern trusts and, and, yeah. and their power. But that's a separate conversation. Let's talk about advertising, let's talk about content, and let's talk about attention. Because in the end, from the earliest days, early newspapers, uh, you name it, folks were trying to sell content to get an audience so that they could sell them product. Yeah. Uh, so talk about some of the characters. You have a, a Jules Charest. Uh, you talk a little bit about Claude Hopkins. Talk about advertising in the 19th century, early 20th century, and, and the attention merchants of the day then. Sure. Well, one of the things I did in this book was try to figure out when advertising was invented. Uh, it's the kind of thing, you know, it's in our daily lives uh, so much now, almost every moment you can be advertised uh, to. And I just thought, well, where did this come from? Um, it actually turns out that there wasn't really advertising like we think about it before, I want to say, the late 19th century, that some of the real techniques, and by advertising, I don't just mean information presentation. I mean something that really grabs you and, and shakes you around and convinces you to buy something that you wouldn't otherwise buy. Right. So I mean you know, persuasive advertising. There's always been people uh, describing that they have something for sale, you know, like a sign in a, in a window that says, um, I don't know, ye old beer available or something. Right. But this idea of something that really tries to persuade you, that, that is new. Jules Charest, who you just mentioned, um, was a Frenchman, as you can tell, uh, living in Paris, and he invented uh, the modern advertising poster. And what he did um, was create a poster that literally you could not take your eyes away from. Maybe you've seen them sometimes. they sometimes found in... Uh, cafes or bars in Paris or, uh, or other uh, cities that want to be like Paris. And uh, they have usually half-dressed or scantily clad women. They're usually holding some kind of alcoholic beverage. There's the brand. It looks like they're moving. The colors are vibrant, big fields uh, of color. And these posters in the late 19th century were absolutely a sensation. No one had seen anything like this. And they said, oh, my God, you know, it's an invasion of our actual brain. And to some degree, that was true in the sense that uh, there are certain triggers that are almost impossible for us to ignore. Motion, um, uh, monstrous-looking uh, creatures, uh, beautiful women, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, motion, uh, loud noises. These things we cannot ignore. And uh, the advertising in the late 19th century, the advertising industry, the early industry, was learning how, how to use them. So he's one of the characters in the book. And let's talk about, you know, as we move into the 20th century, and we start to get real major mass media, and that's uh, essentially the radio and the television. 
And I would only assume that the stakes just, well, they had to get ramped up. We were talking about talking to a lot of people at the same time and major companies wanting to get their brand noticed and purchased. And and talk a bit about how this ramped up in the 20th century. Well, I want to give a shout out, if that's the right phrase, or explain who really ramped this up, because it's important to understand the government got into the game. Um, specifically the British government, uh, through the beginnings of propaganda on a mass scale. Uh, I think the government propaganda paved the path for commercial advertising. Um, it was something of a how-to manual. Um, before World War I, uh, most companies did not advertise. They weren't sure it worked. They thought it was uh, disreputable. Uh, it was really, in my uh, reading of the history, the British government in World War I, with its mass recruiting campaigns, the I Need You posters, the uh, rallies in the streets, that made advertising, first of all, respectable, and second of all, proved that advertising actually worked. Yep. And uh, it was adopted in the United States uh, during the Wilson administration uh, on a huge scale. I mean, unbelievable. And, and they didn't have a lot of competition. You know, there was not much commercial advertising, so every single space of every uh, public area was covered in posters. Uh, they didn't have radio quite yet, right. uh, but and street, open street rallies, uh, people giving speeches uh, in movie theaters at the break. That was one way people were reached, patriotic speeches. And it's as if industry looked at the, the example of government and said, well, you know, this stuff works. In fact, many of the people who had worked in the U.S., um, a propaganda campaign in World War I went into advertising immediately afterwards and marketing. And uh, their idea was to take the uh, methods that had been proven so successful and, and start to use them for, for big brands. Uh, they weren't big brands yet. They were also inventing the brands. You know, we think brands have been away forever, around forever, but uh, the fact is one, there was once a time where the word Cadillac didn't mean anything or right. in Dodge or Coca-Cola. These were just words, and, and you know, they hadn't been sort of branded into our minds. It's odd because did the brands create the mass media? Did the mass media create the brands? And in some ways you're saying, boy, it's sometimes hard to separate the two. Um, no, that, absolutely. Well, when we come back, we're going to drill down even further and bring this to today. There are a few more steps along the way that we're going to take, and we're talking with Tim Wu, and the book is The Attention Merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And please go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do and more important, go to Amazon.com and grab the attention merchants. And the irony here, Tim, of course, is that we're trying to get attention to the attention merchants. And, and, and this is the conundrum, isn't it? Well, I'm no fool. You know, you, you can't uh, uh, do anything until you attract people's attention. I mean, that's one of the things that you, you, I've learned, and I think anyone who works in media uh, learns, is that it all begins with uh, attention, or even politics. You know, you can't win an election if people don't even know who you are. There's always, you know, 10 candidates who no one has ever heard of who never make it. Yep. So the ability to make a splash initially is essential for uh, people to even decide whether they like something or not. You can't say, I don't like a movie if you didn't even hear about it. <laughs> that is so true. And when we yeah. come back, we'll continue on that point. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Tim Wu, the attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. And if you can't catch it here, go to our website and catch it there. And we'll be playing this a bunch more times through the month. We love to repurpose the content. So if you're only catching the middle of it right now, well, just stay tuned. It'll come again at you. And Tim, we left off with uh, the, the World War I experiment that proved the efficacy of advertising. Uh, just to touch on World War II as well, because we had just done an hour on Frank Capra, and he had said that the crowning achievement of his life was dropping the director mantle at Hol- in Hollywood and joining George Stevens, hanging out of B-17s and Liberators, and making the propaganda film series Why We Fight. And Americans got to watch this, this really nonstop and never-ending commercial for the war effort. Uh, talk about that, and then we'll dig into the, the advent of the uh, television era. Well, I'm uh, uh, less an expert on the American World War II propaganda. There was some, but actually America had pulled back considerably from its World War I efforts. There had started to be a sense that um, too much, I think there was some resistance to too much propaganda. They uh, didn't want to be like Nazi Germany or... or uh, uh, Mussolini's Italy. Um, so I think propaganda had got had became more restrained during World War II in the United States. And there were films like uh, Why We Fight, uh, you know. But uh, there's always been, um, you know, pro-American, pro-war uh, films. That's a little different than the kind of intensity the, of the propaganda effort in World War One, where the dissidents were actually thrown in jail. And uh, World War One was much more intense yeah. uh, in the United States. In Europe, <laughs> um, Adolf Hitler. Uh, looked at British and American propaganda and said, these guys are geniuses, uh, especially the British. He thought, the, these, they've got it all figured out, and uh, we want to do that, but even better and bigger and crazier. And that was um, on that model. And, you know, I don't want to link Britain to, to Hitler, but I do want to say that Hitler modeled himself after British propaganda. He had also been in advertising. Not many people know that. And, uh, uh, you know, what Hitler constructed was a sort of total attentional capture. There was no room, nowhere to put your mind other than Nazi news or Nazi entertainment when he was in charge, or more precisely, his lieutenant, Goebbels. Uh, one of the things that he pioneered, <laughs> uh, it's kind of crazy, but is this prime time where you had to sit and listen to the radio show, uh, which was, you know, some music and then Hitler speaking. Uh, on pain of uh, criminal punishment. So, I mean, we talk about must-see TV nowadays, but this was must-listen <laughs> must or go to jail. Slightly different. Uh, yeah. Slightly different. Yeah. And by the way, the, 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 it's no accident that every dictator seizes the media and seizes the attention of a nation. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's how important it is that if you're a dictator, you're going, I need this tool uh, to keep my people in place and to think the way they need to be thinking. Yep. And, and they have, boy, my goodness, from someone like Castro straight to someone like Hitler, there are not a lot of other options or opinions floating out there in anywhere from the Internet to television or anywhere else. But- yeah, and it has a lot to do with how free you end up feeling. I mean, you can't choose something you don't even know exists at all. That's right. That's and in so- Hitler's time, like, you couldn't listen to British radio at all, or it was, it was illegal. And so you had no idea of other options. And, you know, he managed to really control his population. Anyway, I, we could talk about that for hours. No, it's fascinating. Yeah. One thing about. we don't have is a lot, lack of options today. But let's talk about the 1950s, then even the 60s, and the advent in the golden age of television. And let's talk about a character like uh, 
like Paley or like Winfrey. Um, talk about a couple of these legends and what you call the celebrity industrial complex that we sort of have sort of today on the television side. Yeah, sure. So William Paley is a major character in, in the 20th century and in my book. He was a fascinating figure, a playboy of the old school. Um, he had uh, incredibly sophisticated taste. He loved Picasso before no, anyone knew who Picasso was. Uh, but he also had an ear for the public and what they wanted. And so he was incredibly talented at bringing CBS as sort of the great uh, and most important network in the United States, top of the ratings and television. Uh, even though NBC had gotten there first, uh, whether it was the Ed Sullivan Show or I Love Lucy or Bing Crosby or you name it, he just could figure out exactly what people wanted to hear, and, and he gave it to them. Um, uh, one of the challenges uh, of that era in the 50s is television um, became increasingly commercial. People had thought it would be, um, you know, sort of, uh, more devoted to uh, uh, news or education. It became increasingly uh, commercial. But he did an incredible job of, of trying to build a television into something people just really by the, you know, hundred, almost sometimes over 100 million people a night would be uh, watching these shows. And, uh, you know, we haven't really seen anything like it since. Uh, Oprah Winfrey plays a role in the book. Uh, she's one of the first, maybe the first, to found uh, uh, what I would call a one-woman uh, celebrity slash advertising slash production empire. She took all the functions that were divided uh, in between, um, you know, the network and the station and the and the actors, and she she made it all herself. <laughs> yep. And um, made incredible amounts of money. Uh, you know, for many years she was the by far the leading uh, earner in the entertainment industry. Hundreds of millions of dollars uh, became the first black billionaire. Um, and she just uh, is, is an important uh, innovator in this book. Also, maybe more than anyone else, used the techniques of organized uh, religion, uh, you know, made her show into a, more of a spiritual uh, kind of show, which was unusual. I mean, there was like Pat Robertson, the, the 500 Club, but without being overtly religious, she uh, made spiritual appeals that were very uh, successful. So, you know, there are some of the people who populate this book and uh, show how our present came to be. You know, a fascinating side note, uh, Oprah Winfrey, I believe, created a ministry. And a ministry mostly organized around home, stay-at-home moms, mostly white stay-at-home moms. And I don't know if you remember when Oprah suddenly decided to retire her show, but just as a side note, if you track the Nielsens, when she decided to choose to go with an African-American president to endorse rather than the woman president, something yeah. fascinating happened. Oprah is a trader board went up on her website. One million plus women went on and said, I'm never watching again. You chose your race over gender. They uh, were furious. You're right. That was a turning point. Um, I, I think that uh, she was probably on safer territory in the 90s. In the 2000s, she started throwing around her influence a little more. She came under uh, increasing uh, scrutiny or criticism. Um, among others from organized, from organized religion, um, but also, as you just said, during the endorsement of Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton lost, a lot of her audience had a big ratings dive. That's when she decided to finally uh, cancel the show, although she did recover. <laughs> in the, in her last season was, was, was very good, so yeah. uh, who knows? Um, you know, people uh, forgive and forget, or they I don't do. know what. They're but, forgiving. Yeah. They're forgiving, but it even shows that great brands can make a mistake. And, oh, yeah. and it can cost them, and the marketplace is, 
is punitive at times and, oh, yeah. and, and can really put you in your place. And uh, Oprah definitely felt the backlash there. And she has not endorsed candidates since. And I think, you know, Johnny Carson's golden rule, which is that I am not here to, to discuss um, politics. I will lambast both sides equally. And people turn me on at night to laugh and go to sleep. Um, and his, I think this is why, in, in large measure, Johnny had, obviously there were only three networks and he was a talent, but I think that that's one of the other reasons why he had such a massive following. He didn't cut off large parts of his audience with his ideology or his opinions. You know, it's nice to have a few spaces that are free from politics. I yep. feel like we have fewer of those today. You know, we know every newspaper has its side. We know every show. I mean, you kind of, and you're like, oh, everything has to be linked to politics. I mean... I'm just one of these people who, you know, I like politics as much as anyone, but feels there should be some areas where, as a nation, we you know, talk about something else. I guess there's sports. <laughs> yeah, there is <laughs> but, sports. Yeah, there is sports. But uh, other than that, it seems like almost everything else has got to somehow be linked to, like, whether it helps the Democrats or the Republicans. It's a little crazy. And when we yeah. come back, we don't do that here, by the way, on Our American Stories. When we come back, our final segment and the most important Bringing us right into the present. The attention merchants, the epic scramble to get inside our heads. We're talking to Tim Wu, professor at the Columbia Law School and author. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our final segment with Tim Wu, and the book is The Attention Merchants, and let's talk about today. And we had talked earlier about that one hour that you sit down at the computer that turns into three. We all know that. We all feel it. We don't know what the heck happened, and we don't feel good about it, because now we're not getting to the stuff we want to do. Sit down with a wife and just talk for an hour. Play football with a kid. Uh, that time has now been crowded out. What's going on behind the scenes, Tim, that's making us or pulling us to spend more time than we otherwise would have planned? What are the attention merchants doing now that's different and of a different magnitude and order and sophistication than the attention merchants of TV and radio? Well, let me just start and say that the technological advances have been extraordinary. Um, uh, the the advertising platforms of today, and I'm thinking of the online ones, uh, just know so much more about you and are so much more practiced in their techniques of trying to get you to kind of lose control and start to drift around uh, for hours and hours. Um, it's not unlike the design of the casino, the design of the web today. It just has a, a million different little uh, blinking lights and moving pictures and I almost find myself, uh, my hand moving uh, as if uh, uh, bidden by some other force to click on, I don't know, some story about, uh, look at the secret that happened in World War II or something. Um, and now, why is it uh, so much better? So one thing is uh, the, the main advertisers and sites know a lot more about you, so that's one thing, so they can target things to try to get at you. But I think more importantly is they do a lot of experimentation a site like BuzzFeed, which pioneered a lot of these techniques, just throws everything at the wall and 
becomes very good at understanding what makes people click. Uh, they just study it, and they, they keep stats, and the stuff that doesn't work gets thrown out, and the stuff that does work just uh, gets pushed over and over and over again. So I, I just think there's a lot more sophistication in the sort of cocoon we live in when we log in, um, and that's how it manages to devour so much of our time. And uh, that's one of the things I, I'm concerned about. I, as you said, you know, most of us have things we want to do, whether it's building that model airplane or, uh, I, I don't know, playing with your kids more. Whatever it is, we have things we'd like to do, and then we look back and say, well, but I spent three hours clicking on pictures of cats. You think, well, what exactly? Why did that happen? How am I spending my life? And that, that is what I, I'm, I'm concerned about. And, uh, you know, I hope we can uh, start to gain some consciousness to do something about it. I, I think a point you made here, and, and it's a line that I'm going to repeat here, and, and I know authors sometimes cringe when their own work is quoted at them, but the quote is, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. And, and, and by the way, some of the great scientific minds working on algorithms and all the things they're doing. And my goodness, the great you would hope that some of these would be trying to get the next cure for cancer or Alzheimer's. Um, I think this also concerns you as well. Not only the impact it's having on the people who are, who are getting dragged into this place, but so much of the great talent in this country is running to Silicon Valley to do that. No, I, I completely agree with you. I, you know, this country has an incredible... Uh, set of scientists and engineers who invented uh, more than almost any other place in history, and um, you know what you you name it, from spaceflight through um, uh, the internet itself, through the web, through some of the uh, more impressive web technologies. But a lot of that talent in Silicon Valley is right now, as you said, going to try to get people to click on ads because that's the model. Um, you know, when you think about it, uh, how much has Facebook or Twitter really improved over the last five years? Well, they haven't. All they've done is become better at uh, uh, delivering ads in more insidious and sneaky ways. So there's a huge amount of effort going into that. I think it's a cause for for concern, frankly. Um, you know, I want to be, a, as you say, a country that's inventing things that are real new inventions and, you know, different ways of spying on people or getting them to click on a stupid little window that shows up does actually take a lot of talent, but, uh, you know, that could be <laughs> inventive talent better spent. I, I really feel strongly about that. Yep. And, and again, this is where the market, you know, sometimes can create distortions. I mean, this is, but you know, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure that there's any regulatory regime that can drive talent into another place. That's a, that's a scary idea, but maybe just the awareness of it itself is important. Talk to enough young people and they say, oh, I want to go have a career in Facebook and maybe make a face at them. Um, yeah, you know, I think the- it's changing. I think it's sort of changing. I think, you know, these things go through cycles. And I think, you know, people are trying to move to different business models. Uh, it, it, the technologists, you know, I talk to a lot of them. I'm a tech guy myself. And they're like, I don't, don't want to be an ad tech. You know, the talent wants to get out of there and do something else. And I, I do have some faith that we'll find our way out of this. But we are in a place where a lot of our computer scientists are in what's called ad tech, which is improving ad delivery. And, um, you know, so it is. No doubt. And, and the, the, I think the great explosion that's happening also is the content explosion. And, uh, you know, Hollywood now has budgets for Netflix uh, and the likes of budgets they haven't seen in a very long time. And what's beautiful about something like Netflix is they're, not, they're competing my attention, but for content. And they're going to get a subscription model from me. I'm going to pay them $15, and they better, over the, the, the month, give me $15 worth of really terrific content. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it can work. People are willing to pay for 
good stuff if you do it right. You know, and so it's all about everybody wants the same thing. Nobody likes ads. And even the companies that rely on ads, they don't love ads either. They'd rather do content. And if you can figure out the way to connect, you know, our desire to see great stuff, read interesting news, listen to great programs like this program, and, you know, the willingness to pay in an easy way, uh, you know, whether it's subscription or whatever it is, you know, it can be a happy world for everyone. It's just we got to get there somehow. And I think one of the problems is, you know, we got used to everything being free. It all yeah. has to be free or we're not ever going to touch it. And I think that has actually hurt us as a culture. I don't think it's a strength of our culture that we insist on everything being free. No, and I think free implies, in the end, stealing someone else's property. I mean, I've, also, I've often told people, when you take a song, my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's had some hit songs. I said, when you take that song, you're stealing someone else's work. Um, and then that person is not inclined to write another song, and then you will have, by theft, killed off art. Yeah. And, I mean, and, we, and it's, a big, yeah. It's, a big, it's a big problem. I think we want to have a country that's you know, rich culturally as well as financially, where you know, people can make money being songwriters or uh, journalists or you know, having great shows like this one or you know, whatever it is. Not, it's not everyone is making ball bearings or something. Um, you know, and I think that takes a willingness on the population's part to pay for stuff they want, to support the kind of culture they want to see. And um, with everything on an ad model, it just, everything goes towards, oh, you know, it, whatever is the most attention-getting wins all the time. And I think that over time can hurt our culture. And do you think we'll get to the, the area where patrons will come in as well? I mean, when I think of the Renaissance, when I think of Michelangelo, when I think of great art commissioned over the centuries... Um, to what degree will we have that too, Tim? To what degree might that fill a, a space in the end? I mean, I think it does to some degree already. It may end up doing more in the future. Uh, it may be that people can't figure out how to make money on news, and so they rely on wealthy patrons. Um, it's not like that model is perfect either. No. <laughs> you know, there's problems with that. Uh, you yep. know, you have... When people support something, they decide they want to have uh, to dictate what it would say. Oh, and, sure. The, know, Soros, the, the Soros press will have the Soros opinion, and the Koch right. brothers press will have the Koch brothers press. Yeah. Um, but at least maybe there is a place where journalists of that inclination would push. People would get both, read the Wall Street Journal, read the New York Times. Between the mm -hmm. two of them, I think you'll get a pretty healthy reality check on a, a full scope of what different uh, orientations or thinking about a, a specific issue or a specific uh, political idea or even a particular piece of art because through the lens so many people now look at almost everything through a cultural and political lens um, right. that in the end uh, I, I see that as something that just might naturally happen Tim I'm not happy right. about it but I think down the road it might be something that that just happens we were talking during the break about and I'll, I'll make this the last point sure. that if there are too many ads uh, or if Facebook starts to come in. By the way, my little girl said Facebook's so over. She doesn't do it. <laughs> right. And, and, and in large measure, I think it's because those kids, A, think it's uncool because I'm on it. But second, <laughs> I, they already feel the creeping invasion of ads. And they feel like it's now a commercialized platform. They hear about the stock. They hear about it being traded. And they're in the new, new thing. And so in the end, if Facebook starts to n not be careful, it can face the protest vote. Yes, that's right. I think over the history of advertising, people tend to get fed up when it goes too far. And it doesn't, it's weird, it's not like a price. So with prices, if something goes to $1,000, you see a reaction right away. With advertising, it's more like people notice they're fed up and all of a sudden they start quitting. And sometimes they can be very dramatic and they all leave. Yep. 
you know, uh, MySpace 2006 or so. Everyone just quit at once. So, you know, when you keep adding more and more ads to something, it'll work for a while, but then you could have a total collapse. Maybe football's having that problem. I don't know. You know how football ratings are starting to go down? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it could be that people have just, like, oh, I don't know if I have three hours to watch. I love football, but, you know, I don't know if I have three hours to watch half an hour of action. <laughs> well, you know, you're hearing from more and more people the problem that they, they encountered, and some people say it's Colin Kaepernick, and I say, no, that's not it. Here's what's it. Thursday night football, Sunday night football, Sunday afternoon football, Monday night football. It's too much. Right. And Maybe you're watering that, that, down your product. You're trying to capture too much of my attention. Would you people just do one day and maybe Monday night? And you watch. They're already pulling back, Tim, yeah. on Thursday night football. They're going to cancel it. All right. Well, any, you know, fi- any my... final thoughts, Tim, uh, before we say goodbye? No, I, you know, I have some faith ultimately in the power of these things to fix themselves, but it requires our consciousness. It requires people to think about how they're spending their attention and, you know, thinking about whether they're getting a re- good return when you spend time with something and you uh, decide to watch their ads, are they actually giving you something in return? Uh, and, you know, if you really support things, maybe you should pay for them. Yep. You know, put your money where your mouth is and support the stuff that, uh, that really is quality. So that's well, what I want to say. I'll ask you to put your money where your mouth is here, folks, and buy the Attention Merchants. Go to Amazon.com. Again, the Attention Merchants. Tim Wu is the author. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. <laughs> 